Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Smaro Cambarelli with Richard Fung. My name is Paul Minier, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. This interview was recorded during a Tea House symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of colour to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they've experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Richard Fung is a video artist, cultural critic, and professor emeritus in the Faculty of Art at OCAD University. Much of his work deals with the legacy of colonialism in his birthplace of Trinidad and Tobago, Asian diaspora, and the intersection of race, gender, and queer sexuality. Smaro Cambarelli is Avi Bennett Chair in Canadian Literature at the University of Toronto. Her research interests include Canlet as a disciplinary formation in diaspora and Indigenous studies. In this interview, led by Richard Fung, Smaro Cambarelli discusses the evolving constructs around what we now call Canlet, including Cambarelli's community of progressive and challenging scholars and writers who helped shape and reshape this growing field in relation to other socially conscious considerations. This interview features discussions on whiteness, racialization, and diaspora, proximities to social movements both in and outside academia, vulnerability, risk, and openness to failure, connections between heritage and writing through the body, and building kinship with peoples from diverse communities. I teach Canadian literature in the Department of English at the University of Toronto. I'm in my sixth year there as the inaugural Avi Bennett Chair in Canadian Literature. So that's an endowed 
position and I've got the the pleasure, I guess, and the obligation to do an outreach event. So once a year I organize a big event uh, open to the public for free where I have two Canadian authors talk about what literature why literature matters. It's called Literature Matters. So there's a pun on, on matters, what matters, and in terms of different, you know, like literary themes. And then I interview the authors on, on stage. So this is, and then of course I teach. I do a lot of supervision. Beyond that, I've been a, an editor with New West Press since 1981. I mean, I was not an editor when I started, when I joined New West Press, a small what we call a small press in Canada, that's based in Edmonton. But I learned by watching very experienced authors and editors edit. And so I've been um, an editor for a long time, and I, I love being an editor. Tell me how you came to Canadian literature. Oh, my God, how much time do you have? <laughs> I know, because I'm interested in that as somebody who also did not grow up here. Um, how did you come to be mm-hmm. interested in that particular well, I I did my BA in English in Greece. I'm from Thessaloniki, Greece, and I wanted to do a graduate study in American Lit. So I was fortunate enough to get the Fulbright Fellowship. So I went to the U.S. at the State University of New York at Binghamton, where I started my master's in American postmodern writing. One of the most important Canadian writers at the time but who had been living in the U.S. for a while. That's Robert Croach, an Alberta writer who, you know, unfortunately was killed in a car accident about six, seven years ago. So Robert was coming back to Canada and I followed. And as a result of that, I discovered Canada. I knew nothing about Canada, literally. The only thing I knew was Margaret Trudeau. And I had... um, a pen pal in Montreal, we corresponded in Esperanto. I was very much into Esperanto in those days. And that's all I knew about Canada. So through Robert, I had a very unique, you know, privileged experience as a new immigrant because I got to meet with him and they became my closest friends, people like Fred Wall and Pippi Nicol and, you know, Michael Ondaatje and George Bowery and Roy Mickey. So that, these were... These people were my part of my immediate milieu. And so, of course, I switched from American lit to Canadian. What year was that? Uh, in 1977, I think that was the year I went to the U.S. It was 1978 when we came to Canada. Now, when I think of the term, you know, can-lit, I think of, in its earlier iterations, people like Morgan Lawrence, Atwood, etc., but it's interesting to hear you mention Fred and Roy Mickey and Andachi. Andachi would have been the, one of the few names that were not like white Canadians. So yes. tell me this interest, this interest of yours, and how you because you're okay. you're thinking of Canadian literature in a different yes. way than it had been until recently. Yeah, Canadian. well, when I came to Canada, Canlit was still literally it existed, given this centennial, you know, ultra nationalist kind of sensibility in the late sixties. There was such a thing as Canlit, but it was still in the process of formation because to put things in perspective, at that time, Canlit was not taught as a mainstream literature in most English departments in the country. And so when people today talk about Canlit as a, 
institutional monolith uh, and as being completely equivalent to synonymous with settler culture. And I, I agree with that. But they forget that Kanlit itself began as an anti-colonial movement because you were supposed to teach Kanlit in the context of American or British. When I got my first tenure track job at the University of Victoria in 1987, the chair of the department told me, of course, you, you know, would expect you to teach Kanlit in the context of American lit because I had some background in America. And I said, over my dead body. That was my first act of kind of resistance. <laughs> Uh, so that gives you a sense of how there was a certain establishment, the names you mentioned, but there were other writers. And of course, I was out west. And so Rudy Webb, Fred Wall, Roy Mickey, they had a regional kind of Western sensibility. And in those days, it was Toronto, was like, you know, Canada, really, uh, and the rest of the country. And so I was very much, I grew up in Canada, I like to put it that way as a Canadian by witnessing and also becoming a participant in the various regionalist movements like establishing small presses like New West Press or Turnstone Press in Winnipeg, Thistledown in Saskatchewan, uh, Talon Books in Vancouver. And I was also one of the founding members of the Manitoba Writers Guild our model was the Saskatchewan Writers Guild. So people out west had to do all kinds of things in order to be able to claim space and voice in the larger Canadian context. And so I had this very interesting, to go back to your question, interesting sense of what Canlit was about. I was shocked that people, students were not studying Canlit at school. I, I was absolutely shocked because coming from a European background, you have a different sense, a different relationship with literature. And then at the same time, I was surrounded by writers who were making things happen. And so I was very fortunate in that respect to get the official discourse on Canlit, nationalist and this and that, survival, the garrison mentality. Uh, and then I was getting like, you know, all the other stuff from people like Fred Warren, Bipi Nikoch, you know, Rudy Webb, you know, my late ex-husband, Robert Proch. So I was very fortunate in that regard. You're talking about the kind of um, pulling apart of a, a, or, or the, the rise of regional voices. But one of the things you're also associated with is the kind of rise of writers of color and mm. indigenous writers. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, mm. my first uh, book is a poetry book, prose poetry book, called In the Second Person. And it's a book that came out in 85, and I was encouraged to do it and pursue it by Daphne Milet and Bippe Nicole, because I was not thinking of myself as a writer as such. But, and it deals with my immigrant experience from the perspective of language. It was when I was started, I started being referred to as an ethnic when I would go to various gatherings and people would ask me to recite Homer by heart or things like that, or they, I would encounter then uh, all kinds of Greek stereotypes. And so I didn't fit within the Greek Canadian community because I come from an urban environment. I was a feminist and they were very traditional, lovely people, but very traditional, church oriented. They did not approve that I lived in sin. I was not married, we didn't get married right away. I was with a man who was, you know, 28 years older than me. 
uh, Canadian of Greek. So all, so I was alienated from the Greek community. Then I was fetishized as a Greek. And so in those days, ethnic was the label, right? And, and I decided that I wanted to, I mean, I wrote a bit about that experience in my poetry book. And then as things started happening in terms of multiculturalism mm -hmm. and all that, I decided I would explore the, the issue. And I, you know, that was in my second academic book called Scandalous Bodies, where I delve into the topic. So it was a personal experience. And also it had a lot to do with people like Roy Mickey. Roy, I lived in Winnipeg where I did my PhD. And Roy was in Winnipeg all the time because of the beginning of the regress movement. Mm -hmm. So I was learning as a student about Canadian history. And then through Roy, I was learning a different Canadian history. I remember going to Senegath where Roy's family was sent. And hearing that history, you know, I was looking at the place where his family lived. His mom was pregnant with him at the time. And then living through Roy, all that, you know, experience and and how difficult the redress movement was to get it off the ground both in terms of the politics the internal politics in the jc community and the politics at large so those things really influenced me and i consider roy as one of my most important influence both as a intellectually and as a as a as a friend there's a way i mean you use the term ethnic and there there's a way in which Canada's gone through a number of different phases of thinking about our language around the other. And, and ethnic is very much a term that I think of from perhaps from the 70s. Yes, that's the period I'm referring yeah. to. But there's a way in which now that things seem to have concretized very much into discussions of race and, and be indigenous. Yes. And do you think there is a place, or how do you feel about that in relation to discussions of ethnicity in which, say, people who are Greek or Italian or, say, Portuguese or Armenian who don't fit into a kind of racial other, the position of racial other, but who also have been minoritized within the state, where do you suppose, that do you feel that there's a place for those discussions now? It seems that there's not, not very much. This is such an important and difficult question, Richard. I think there should be room. One of the things I learned through the 80s and early 90s when writing through race and uh, the culture where wars were you know, unfolding, uh, it was a very profound period or long moment for me that I learned a lot about you know, racialization and all that, and, and also about whiteness. Because most of my immediate friends and collaborators were people of color. And so at the same time that I would, you know, like identify with the politics and support it, I've, there were moments when I would feel like, do I really belong here? Can I speak with the same voice? But, you know, obviously not. But the book I mentioned, Scandalous Bodies, I went through a long period of silence around uh, immediately, well, during and immediately after writing through race, where I couldn't write, I couldn't, I had to realign my thinking about who I was, how my body was perceived, because I had been minoritized, but I cannot possibly put my own, the ways I have been orientalized and all that, at the same level. 
as the minoritization, you know, discrimination experiences of, of people of color. You know, obviously, they're not the same. And yet there should be room for discussions of, of whiteness that is not quite synonymous with hegemonic whiteness, with normative whiteness. And I think this is still a very difficult topic. We still have to do a lot of work on that, not only people like me, but also, you know, other people in the field who are interested in racialization and, and racism. Yeah, because I think that one has to have a really nimble sense of thinking about racialization. When I teach this stuff, I mean, I, I like to tell students about the way that the Irish were racialized, yes. you know, like a hundred, yes. hundred yes. Uh, more years ago. Because that also allows them to think about how religion can become a source of racialization, Absolutely. as we Absolutely. see today in the yes. Islamophobic. Yeah, um, I remember reading okay. for the first time uh, Woodsworth's book, Strangers in Our Gates, where he was a member of the parliament of the town. He was very liberal, radical in those days in terms of otherness. And yet in that book, he talks about Southern Europeans with Greeks at the very top of that list as being in all the negative stereotypes and they were below the Chinese Canadians because the Chinese Canadians had a good, strong work ethos. Greeks were uh, lazy, they were untrustworthy because they had been brought up as a, as a group, as a nation through the Ottoman Empire and of course that's Orientalism and all that. And it was an eye-opener and then Greeks were lynched in the U.S., in Australia. There were uh, anti-Greek race viol uh, riots in Toronto in, immediately after the First World War that I didn't know about. I found out only recently. So you see yourself through that prism of history and you realize that you have to realign the way you see yourself and how you are viewed by others. And so that's, it's very hard today to find a way in which you can introduce discussions of whiteness at this level, the way things are, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult. Yeah, I remember, I think it's Covenant Mercy who said something, the problem with white supremacy is not white people. It's like this idea of whiteness, yes. that whiteness yes. is a shifting category yes. of privilege. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's very important. Yeah. In this regard, what do you think would be, what might you say is your most important contribution? Oh, hmm. Could you think of an event or an initiative well, that you would... I think I would say that I, before I joined U of T, I was at the University of Guelph as a calendar research chair, tier one, and I founded an inst directed an institute called Transcalendar Institute. The name was inspired, you know, from Roy Kiyoka's Transcalendar Letters. Uh, and that was actually a plan that I devised as a result of a a series of conferences Roy, Mickey, and I organized, Trans-Canada conferences. And so the Institute and the three conferences I co-organized with Roy and others, and the most recent one with Larissa, Larissa Lai in 2017 at the U of T, uh, but especially the first conferences and the Institute were very important in creating a loose sense of community that brought together people like writers, visual artists, performance artists, academics from Canada and overseas, and created kind of a 
you know, intellectual, creative, political, cultural laboratory where people came together and talked and argued. We had think tanks, we had readings, workshops, seminars, conferences. So I think it had a big impact, especially because of the way it was conceptualized. And I, I have to, you know, I did that with Roy, thinking of revisiting Canadian literature, but we wanted to look at Canlit as, you know, what Canlit is through and beyond the multicultural frame that the nation state had kind of given us to think through. And we wanted to pay attention not to methodology and pedagogy and not sort of focus on the traditional, you know, literary themes, which are very important. And I'm not, you know, putting down thematic criticism as such, but we were more interested in retooling the field, retooling the humanities. And so actually one of the first projects I did as a CRC, again, it was a collaborative project with Daniel Coleman, was a book of essays called Retooling the Humanities, one of the few books in Canada that look at institutional structures like SHIRC, for example, funding institutions, because they determine so much where we come from, what we propose, how we think, how we frame our arguments, how we distribute them. And for me, in order to do, to establish an institute and do a series of conferences on CanLead, I felt compelled to first examine the systemic structures and how this project would kind of drive a wedge, re recast the frame. So I would say Traskanda Institute and the conferences and all the events, you know, it was a very discursively conceptualized project that that's, I consider it to be an important contribution, but it's up to others to determine. <laughs> well, at this point, I have actually can go into two directions. I'm trying to think of which one to go in. But I guess since you're talking about the Institute, perhaps what do you think are the kind of key questions that have come out of that that, uh, that preoccupy you now? Or that you see well, as a kind of conceptual, political problematics or knots that need to be... Yeah, well, the first, a number of things that are kind of interrelated. First of all, trying to understand the field of Kamlid as an institution and kind of engage with and critique its, what I call its political unconscious, sort of echoing Frederick Jensen. And it's not necessarily as monolithic or as homogenous as we think it is. I wrote about that. I mean, this project brought out a number of books and I, when you are, uh, when you lead the collaborative project, you become kind of an editor par excellence. So what you write mostly is introductions. <laughs> so I wrote a bit about that. And then it was a matter of bringing together different streams, if you want, of candidate, diaspora, indigeneity, post-coloniality, decolonization. So there was a time, especially after the kind of big influx of most pro, uh, multicultural discourses, where everybody was writing about ethnic or multicultural post-colonial literature. And it was as if everybody wanted to adopt the other and do things for the other. And that, it was an important moment. But at the same time, it raised questions of methodology. How do you do it? And so the methodology and interdisciplinarity or what I, I call thick interdisciplinarity, not simply referencing someone, mm -hmm. but employing the tools of another discipline to, to try and understand, you know, kind of uh, perform an anatomy <laughs> of your own discipline. Uh, so I would say 
methodology was one thing. Bring, yeah, bringing issue. together diaspora and the genetic at the level of collaboration was a big issue and still remains understood at different levels, you know, in terms of how you collaborate with people coming from different uh, constituencies, but also in terms of how different discourses collaborate with each other and the ethos, you know, what is the ethos and the ethics of collaborate, collaborating? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, you want to engage with indigenous discourses, but if you're not indigenous, how do you do that respectfully and not, you know, letting them create the terms of the engagement rather than bringing them into a frame that pre-exists? Well, in your own practice as a as an academic, as a publisher, etc. I mean, you you have had very successful relationships across difference. So, what would you say would be the kind of lessons that you've learned, or do's and don'ts in terms of would, building that ethical, yes, productive relationship? I think relationship? you've got to uh, be willing to suspend your beliefs. You've got to listen. And there were moments that, for me, academically and personally, were very painful politically, and I withdrew into silence, but then I realized it was what I had to do, because I had to listen. I had to kind of unlearn my modes of learning in order to be able to, to relate. And like most recently, I edited uh, Limarco's oratories. It was a process that lasted for about on and off about seven, eight years. It was a daunting experience because I mean, who am I to you know edit Lee Margot? You know, I mean, she's I have so much admiration for this woman as a person and as a as a writer, as an activist, and so I had to learn, and she had to learn to work with me, and it was um, it was difficult, but you had to learn how to deal with the difficulties and and the challenges, and not give up, and not try to change the way your logic works. So what for me was like a right sentence, an elegant <clears throat> sentence, was not what would work for Liz oratories, because oratory is, especially when you publish it, is, a, is almost like a paradox, because it's oral discourse mm -hmm. that is accompanied and produced by protocols and ceremony. And then you translate that onto the page. How do you maintain the cadences of the oral voice and all that? At the same time that you make it readable and, you know, having a lasting quality as a book, as a finished object. So I learned a lot by working with you. So you have to be humble. You have to change your basic assumptions sometimes and be willing to fail. Be willing to fail and, and make yourself vulnerable. That's what I learned. It's not easy, but yeah. <laughs> I, I like that last thing about willing to fail. I mean, I do, I, I've talked to my students about that. Because mm -hmm. I think there's this pressure to succeed all the yes. time. Yeah. The ground has shifted in terms of your time with, you know, looking at Canlet and being involved with it. But also other grounds have shifted, right? In terms of expectations of teaching in the university. The way people have talked about it, the students now see themselves as clients. Customers, technologies have shifted. How do you? What are your feelings about that? And how do you see yourself? This discourses have shifted. Modes of communication have shifted. We've talked about this. That um, you know, there's a kind of a judgmentalism now, and a, I am myself feeling a little bit of a um, 
that there is little room for the kind of interventions that I have made in the past because they've required people to to slow down and to rethink and to think slowly. And there seems to be snap judgment seems exactly. to be the responses of today. I couldn't agree more. I think about the first part of your question about the you know universities having having become corporations or kind of uh, looking at knowledge as the new form of capital students as clients, these were the topics that I engaged with in the first book I mentioned as part of the Transcanada project, Returning the Humanities. So I, it really has, it's an, it's an issue, and I'm still trying to come to terms with it, because looking at the student as a client, that's how the system presents the student to you, you've got to, now the student, the client is always right, as the saying goes, right? And you're supposed to please them. And that's completely against my sense of pedagogy, that I'm not there to please them. They have lovers, friends, family, parents to please them. I'm there to shake them up, to make them think otherwise. It doesn't always work. So that's an issue, and I've, you know, I've been trying to come to terms with that. But in terms of the new media and technologies, I have a Facebook page that my research assistant created and I never go there. When I go there, I get so bored or so overwhelmed. It's like, you know, like a web with different trajectories. And which way do you go? And I have a Twitter account because I want to kind of follow some things, but I've never tweeted in my life. So I feel overwhelmed. I feel by this kind of, I don't know what to call it, technology or means of communication. And I think they have had both a good and detrimental impact on intellectual work, on activism. There have been great venues to promote activism, but at the same time, precisely because of what you said, that there's that snap judgment um, and everything is done in a public forum, really. I find that it's been really, it had a negative impact on, on my field. And especially in the last three, four years, where I find that if you do not agree with what the general consensus is, you're just, you become an enemy of the cause. And you may support the cause in principle, you know. So it's a very difficult time. And I went through, I'm still going through a period when I'm trying to come to terms with it. One of the focuses of this gathering is around aging and the body. So, like, I myself feel in a kind of dilemma when I think of these issues. Is this critique just, or is it the aging person who is out of sync? I, I agree with you. We share a perspective on the shifts, right? But I'm just wondering if, if you have anything else to add to that. I would say okay. that one thing that has changed, and I don't think that has much or anything to do with, you know, social media, is that when I was... A younger academic. When I was a student, I respected and engaged with my elders, like not even necessarily in terms of age. You know, like Pippi Nicol was not that much older than me, but for me, he was like, you know, an elder in terms of wisdom, of accomplishments, and all that. And I always tried to be respectful and to learn from them and all that. I think here today, people. Uh, I don't know, maybe there's so much going on that they're not so much interested in what you may have to share, given your expertise and experience because of your age, 
they're more interested in, in things that have an element of the scandalous about it. I think things suffer from what I call presentism, a reluctance to read the present moment, however troubling it may be, through you know various complex temporal layers, like they focus on the present moment. So when they say can lead is hegemonic, well, yes, it is. But look at can lead too. Most of the bigger words go to people of color and indigenous writers these days, or courses are about them. But think that you know, as far as the mid nineties, very few departments had fully fleshed out can lead courses. Can you imagine that? That's actually. If you don't think that, or if you don't want to know about that, then your critique of the present moment is, is warped, really. So I think that I feel irrelevant sometimes, given my age. I'm shocked that my students don't know some texts that I think, or writers that I think are hugely important. I don't blame them, though, because there's so much they can fit into their already loaded schedules. So... I try not to be bitter about it. I think it's important to find new ways to, be, to remain engaged. But I wish that the younger generation would try to kind of reach out in a way of acknowledging that you need to have a sense of the genealogy of things. Something which has occurred to me is I became fascinated with your experience or reflections on the kind of academic work you see students working on today as opposed to say whatever you might compare it to in your from the time you were a grad mm-hmm. student, because there's a way in which I, I think I'm feeling that a lot of activism has moved into the university, a lot of work that's connected to activist issues or what I've seen in activists have become highly theorized, yes. uh, very kind of theoretical. Mm-hmm. The stakes are often theoretical. Yes, um, and how, so. what, what are you noticing about the kind of uh, dissertations that people are writing today? That's an interesting question because I'm supervising a, a brilliant dissertation and it's about revisiting one of the oldest and most important tropes in the history of Hamlet's formation, and that is the pastoral. So that's really beginning with Northrop Fry. But what he does through the avant-garde poetry of Verin Mouret or Rachel Zolf, Jordan Abel, is revisit the pastoral as a, as a discourse that has major relevance in terms of extractionist politics and eco-criticism and all that. So it is a project that engages primarily with literary texts, and it's very theoretical, but it does also reach out to the kind of, say, you know, trans-Canada pipeline issues or... or the kind of activism that we saw happening in, on the West Coast in the last few years. But it's very heavily theoretical. But at the same time, I see that students who do this kind of work can also be involved in the community. I have another student who is writing about the tensions between and relationality between indigenous and black writers, which is a very big issue. It has been a big issue in the last few years. But she's just starting much involved in sort of Black Lives Matter and communities that bring indigenous and black writers together, as she is in theoretical concerns. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's the most productive way to proceed, because theory is not necessarily always something abstract. Theory is a way of thinking. Well, it's actually, yeah, it's like thinking through things. Yes. I'm going to come back to where I was supposed to go, 
which was about the body. Oh, okay. And how do you experience body aging? That's a, oh, that's a big question that Larissa big, has yes. put to us. Well, I think the body is the main site through aging. Okay, so obviously, I'm very much aware of it. I was diagnosed with spinal stenosis a few years back, and I go through periods when I can barely walk. I've got some uh, memory issues that have been diagnosed as being part of my ADHD, lack of ability to concentrate, so writing has become difficult. I have difficulty tapping on my knowledge. I know I know it, but I cannot get at it, and it's so maddening. But sometimes I think it's not... I've been around older people most of my life, beginning with my late ex-husband. And so I have a lot of experience with aging, with, you know, caring for others and watching others age, and it's no, it's not pretty. I'm kind of emotionally and rationally prepared for it, but I don't like it. But I think there's a big difference between, I don't know, the body has been very important for me in my work and, you know, in general. But there is a point, I think right now, I think my body is kind of, it's not what it used to be, of course, <laughs> but I think that we shouldn't uh, let our body necessarily determine what we do because there is a certain, I mean, the body may fail you, but your mind is still there. And sometimes vice versa, you lose <laughs> yes. your mind and you have a very healthy, functional body. But it's learning to realign your priorities and you, you relate differently with space. I want to write a bit about that. I don't know how or when or what exactly, what about, but it's definitely a preoccupation. I, I want to How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I empathize with a lot of what you're saying is the question of recall, being in the class, you know, like being yes. able, not being able to remember names. I have to yes. say, there's this artist that I, and they do such and such a thing, yes. and I'll tell you the name when I yes. think about it in the other class if I... Think about it. I have to send them notes. Yes, that's what I, I thought of. I thought of who that was. This is the person. This yes. is what they do. So that does put a certain kind of pressure on yes. one. Another. I mean, I think as a teacher, you become particularly aware of that happening. Perhaps if I'm, you I'm very much aware of that because there was one moment. Actually, that was a long time ago uh, when I was teaching a novel. I was holding it. And I could not think of the author's name. I had to turn the book around to read the author's name. It doesn't happen very often, but when it happens, I don't feel embarrassed. I explain to them that's, you know, sometimes in a joking fashion, but I'm not sure they have the, I don't know if it's empathy or maturity as young people to understand, unless they have parents, grandparents who go, through a similar process, which is very normal and natural, to understand that it's normal. It doesn't mean you ha you've lost it or you haven't got it, but you do feel vulnerable. And there is a point when you have to say, do I leave the classroom now or not? Yeah. I want to swing back from today, and we're talking about aging, right to the beginning. Because okay. my sense is that your formation, where you grew up, how you grew up, your family, etc., was very key to how you see the world and what you've been able to do. 
your perspective on issues you seem very much formed by that. Could you tell me a little bit more about I think in some ways, very much so. I come from, um, uh, I guess, low working class background, but very urban background. My grandmothers, both grandmothers, were uh, refugees from uh, what is now Turkey. But they didn't bear with them. They didn't have the kind of refugee trauma that we're talking about today. I mean, it was the traumatic experience. They've lost everything. They lost money, status, family. They started from scratch. But they did give me a sense of complexity in terms of rootedness and belonging and how volatile those things can be. My father, probably more than my mother, was extremely influential. He was a railway employee. He was a big union activist. He was the um, general secretary of the, one of the largest unions in Greece. Organized hunger strikes and things like that. He was very left-wing. So I grew up with this kind of sense of politics. You know, he was a very feisty man, not uh, educated. I would, he would ask me to read his speeches, to correct them. Mm -hmm. And so I think I got his sense of, you know, people call me feisty. So he was very feisty and he didn't always know when to hold back. And we, as a family, we suffered financially and otherwise, especially during the military regime because of his outspokenness. So I got my sense of politics and urgency through my dad. Then I come from a city, Thessaloniki, that was hugely multicultural at the time when we didn't even think of those things. Thessaloniki was liberated from the Ottoman Empire only in 1917, very relatively recently. And so I have this kind of paradoxical history in the sense of coming from one of the so-called cradles of Western civilization, but the history of modern Greece does not start until, you know, 1827 when the, you know, southern part of Greece was liberated. And so I have a complex sense of modernity and the nation in that sense, and diaspora. Because mm -hmm. what played a major role in the formation of modern Greece as a state was the diaspora, the Greek diaspora, was part of the Enlightenment diaspora. And so all those things gave me a sense of the complexity of, you know, nation and nationalism, completely under, you know, Greek nationalism. I can't abide it, or, or fetishizing your ancestors. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, know your plate, or I studied all that, and, you know, but I don't share that sense of national pride of coming from the same place as Aristotle. It's nice, but, you know, the modern Greek culture tends to fetishize. All but that. I've been fascinated by the whole debate around Macedonia. Yes, oh, well, <laughs> actually, it was... Because technically I'm a Macedonian yeah. from the Greek <laughs> province of Macedonia. But it was around that debate when it started that I started doing a lot of research on the history of Thessaloniki and the whole region. And I learned a lot about the history. And so at the same time that I think the Macedonian, in scare quotes, in some Greek I'll put Macedonian scare quotes referring to the new state of Macedonia, claims on the region uh, because the Slavic people did not come down there until the 6th century. But it's also a phenomenon they found intriguing. Who am I to tell these people they're not Macedonians? If that's who they believe they are, 
It's their own mythology. Like one Greek director, uh, Theo Angelopoulos, whose work I love, mm-hmm. published one essay on one of his films, Ulysses Gaze, that tackles that question. Mm-hmm. And that. Yeah, <laughs> I know it by heart because I wrote about it, so I watched it many times, and it's so long and slow, but I love his work. But that's the question he takes on, in, in the film. There's a very interesting interview with Angelopoulos where he talks about a square in a Bosnian city. When the uh, Serbians go by, they cross themselves. When the Muslims go by, they make the sign of you know, acknowledging a holy site or a sacred site. And right now, in the present moment, this monument is a urinal. But it has historical significance for three different groups, kind of the equivalent of Jerusalem, right? And so he critiques the kind of atavism that can be so dangerous. And so I'm on that side of, and I think it's important to respect people's origins and all that. That's why I have a troubling relationship with certain aspects of Greek nationalism, because it implies a certain kind of linearity in terms of history. And my dad always said, you know, like, we're not necessarily Greek. And I did have my DNA tested not too long ago, so I'm 18%, if I remember correctly, Arab. So makes perfect sense. I'm well, they, they, I mean, I, I do want to come back to the Thessaloniki, because I'm just fascinated to hear more about it. But there's a way in which Greek identity is so interesting. And I remember the first time I went to Greece was in 1977, and I was struck when I heard Greek music that it sounded Arab to me, right? The way that Greeks is both European and Middle Eastern. Absolutely. It's and both a part of and a part of the West. And that's what makes it so important. And I think some Greeks have a hard time embracing that hybridity or complexity. Because the stakes of European belonging are... Right, exactly. That's right. Yes. My grandmother, especially one of the two grandmothers the one I'm named after, spoke Turkish. And I grew up, when I spent time with her as a little kid, she would take me to watch Turkish movies. Mm. So I knew when I met some Turkish you know, colleagues in, in Istanbul once, we compared notes with the same generation. We grew up with the same Turkish movies and the same Turkish kind of stars. I was interested in, yeah. because I, I only went to Turkey in the last two years. And then I realized there are dishes that are thought of as quintessentially Greek mm-hmm. and dishes that are quintessentially Turkish, and they're the same, and the names the are slightly yes. different. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, we, for example, one of my favorite Greek dishes is what we call imam bayildi. Oh, yes, yes. Which is eggplant. is my favorite yeah. vegetables, but imam is a Muslim imam. Bayildi is someone who's run Fated. out of breath. Oh, yeah. Fated. Fated. You run, you run, you faint. Yeah. I like that yes. dish. Yes. I love you. I should have you come to my mom's. It's a wonderful mom, by the day. So, yeah, in other words, like, even part of my, like, last name, Kamburelli, I hated my name in Greek because Kambura in Turkish means, and in Greek, is hunchback. So kids used to make fun of me. And, of course, the Ottoman Empire, colonialism was very similar, but also very different from the model of British imperialism and British colonization. And so there are Greeks who, even Greek academics, wonderful historians and scholars, who have a hard time looking at things Greek from a post- or decolonial perspective. 
so I find that really, really fascinating. Mm. Yeah. I had this little question in brackets because it's not really related so much to the interview, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by what, what would you say would be the differences between Thessaloniki and, say, Athens in terms of the way that the city sees the world, perhaps, in the sense, because I'm thinking of, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary I have such that, different yes, politics and senses. Um, that's an interesting question. Well, Thessaloniki is always left behind. It's like the way in the old days in Canada, Toronto was Canada, and the rest was like provincial. It's still the same with Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki had a wonderful international film festival. Mm -hmm. I grew up when I was still a student. We used to get inside the festival through the back door, but Athens is trying to take it. Uh, so. It's only because of political and strategic reasons that they started paying a little more attention to Thessaloniki now. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful city, but its cultural life has been going under. I mean, when I was growing up there, there were so many wonderful galleries. I lived downtown, and our pastime at 16, 17 years old was to go and cross the openings of galleries, you know, to have some wine and all that. It was a vibrant scene. Lots of bookstores, lots of small presses, lots of literary magazines. That was part of my, you know, my cultural formation. All of that is gone now. Everything is filtered through Athens. It's very, very sad. And I think you cannot have a vibrant culture and nation state with only one important city. It's very sad when I go back. Yeah, it's a, it's a city I've actually wanted to go to for a long time. Tell me about what you see as important or, or interesting for you to do in the future, you know, as you, you're planning projects? Well, I've, I started writing a book a long time ago, and I put it aside to do the collaborative work that I described. And so I'm, I'm trying to get back to this book. So it's a book about diaspora and indigeneity through the notion of kinship. I look at kinship as a, not in terms of blood relations, but as a tool, as a critical trope as a different way of looking at relationality. And for example, I finished a chapter recently about the journals of Rasmussen, uh, the Insuma Productions movie, yeah. where you have an interesting, you know, kinship is thematized in so many interesting ways by way of, of talking about both traditional modernity. So I want to finish this book because it's like an albatross around my neck <laughs> because it's been in the works for so long. So I want to get that done, and then I want to... I started writing in a slightly different way, not strictly speaking academically, like the piece I read the other night. It's more auto... I don't know, Roy has been telling me, Roy Mickey, that I should write my memoirs. I don't want to do my memoir, but I want to write my body and my voice and my experience into my writing. And it was my experience of going to Nunavut the first time, of going to the West Bank and of co-sponsoring a Syrian refugee family that compelled me to think of theoretical terms I was writing about in a very different way. And so instead of writing about the effect of others, I want to write about the kind of effect that complicates my relationship to language and writing. So that's what I want to pursue next. There's a way in which, you know, you, you spun such very clear and evocative images in when you read that text. Mm. But there's a way it, in which it brings to life, like I still have the, you know, the, the image of the, the seal meat, the exchange with the chocolate, and 
Like if I'm thinking about, you know, this exchange of steel meat and a chocolate bar with a with you and a young Inuit boy, there's a way in which it asks me to think through a set of relationships that if you were writing theoretically you would unpack. Yes. Exactly. Much more. Yes. But it leaves the reader or the listener in this case to take a more active role in making meaning of that. I think you're right, but I think what I'm trying to unpack in that kind of thing is be more self-reflexive about my own point of entry into that culture. And one of the things I feel is important, especially when, as a non-Indigenous person, you write about indigeneity, is the politics and ethics of intervention and non-intervention. So when I go there, I'm making an intervention. That community has been intervened, if you want, has been created. That particular hamlet was created by the state because they killed, they slaughtered their dogs. They forced them to go to what used to be only a whaling station and forced them to make a community there for all kinds of reasons that we're more Have or less you seen the angry of, Pardon me? The angry Inuit. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, they know how to handle intervention. I mean, we think like you go there and it's a you know, poor community and you have to really suspend your assumptions in order to be able to appreciate how poor, financially, socially, but also rich it is, culturally and otherwise. And so I had to learn how to walk differently. I mean, that's, I didn't read the whole passage, but because the, the landscape, everything is so different. But at the same time, I don't know how to put it. I felt so much at home there. It was a profound experience for me. What's, yeah. what's interesting about that way of writing is that it puts the writer under the microscope yes. as much as... Yeah. So you're being studied. Yeah, you study yourself when you're being studied. Yeah. That's right. Well, I think that's one of the things, as I guess I implied earlier when I talked about, you've got, I believe it's important to take risks and not being afraid to fail or become vulnerable. That's how I learned there how to sit and listen. And they made fun of me many times, but in a very generous, good-humored kind of way that was instructive, uh, but not in a way that would make me feel, oh my God, what have I done? I would laugh with them at myself, and it was liberating, because that's how I learned. Do you feel that was something you could have done when you were younger? Uh, to some extent... Maybe, but not to this extent. No, I think it takes a certain kind of maturity and experience or even a certain kind of confidence. The confidence, not that you know better, the confidence that you can handle it and that you can grow through it, you can learn through it, right. rather than seeing it only as failure. And, you know, like I made one faux pas one day about eating and... The man and his wife are stayed with had a wicked sense of humor, and it took me a few days to pick up his sense of wit and irony. And out of politeness, I would play along. You know, and I said, "Cannot, can't possibly mean that." You know, and then he would laugh and laugh and tell that to the others, and everybody would laugh at me, and I would laugh with him at me. It was that's what created kinship. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that's on the sheet is around. Relationships, yes. and it sounds like you have these long-standing relationships with people like Fred and Roy McKee, etc., but also you're building new relationships. 
I hope that's the case. I really feel now that Roy has kind of withdrawn a bit, for me it's a huge loss. We're still in touch, I still go and see him, but we did so much together, so much together, and I feel I'm still learning how to realign my professional life and my thinking without him by my side. New relationships, yes, I'm trying to. Uh, that boy I mentioned in my piece, he and I became very attached to each other to the point that we were made fun of. I would walk into the kitchen tent and look around and they would say, oh, he's over there, because they knew I was who I was looking for. I went back last summer and visited him. He's grown up and it was very wonderful reunion and with his family too. So I want to go back. These are different kinds of relationships. And even like the refugee family I, I co-sponsored. That's, you know, learning to see them not as refugees, you know, as, as people beyond that kind of initial stage where you have to, you know, kind of guide them through their new life here. These are important relationships, yeah. And I'm trying to maintain relationship. I was talking with Fred about that. With my younger, you know, my nephew and my nieces, I don't have children. I'm single. And I, I sometimes I'm, I feel kind of invisible, actually, even in terms of my profession. And so it's, I do want to establish kinships, but it's not always easy. I think it's, it is important, especially when one is in academia, to make relationships outside of the institution yes. and outside yes. of the field. I think they enrich each other. Yes, definitely. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this interview of Smaro Cambarelli by Richard Fung. I'm Paul Minier, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium, Wisdom Council. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Minier, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.